we're marking the Lenten season this year that leads up to Easter with a series uh, of sermons about sin called Twisted, because Twisted is how uh, the Bible describes the way that sin has affected God's original design uh, for the world. It has mangled it. Sin has wrenched it. It has distorted it in every way. And in fact, we've been looking at the Bible's account of the moment that sin entered the world, which is found in Genesis chapter 3. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, and those of you who attend City Church regularly know that you need to have one, uh, find Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. The first two chapters of Genesis describe the world in glowing terms. Everything is perfect. Uh, Everything worked the way that it was supposed to. It's a literal paradise. Harmony. There's harmony throughout all of God's creation. There's peace. There's no sickness. There's, There's no suffering, no death, no natural disasters, no pollution, no contaminated water supplies, no shortages of food or or water. Humanity demonstrated God's goodness by caring for one another and caring for God's creation. But then in Genesis chapter 3, a tsunami of of destruction washes over God's pristine paradise. And just by way of review, we watched the way that Satan tempted Eve in the first five verses of chapter 3. And we saw that sin is the result of twisted ideas about the character of God. Sin uh, always comes out of the twisted belief that God isn't good and that if we obey him, he's going to withhold the very best things in life from us. That's that's always the, the origin of sin. And then last week, we watched as Eve ate the forbidden fruit and gave some to Adam. And while on the surface, it didn't seem like such a big deal, in reality, we saw that eating the fruit was a power grab. Sin is always a power grab. We declare autonomy from God when we sin. We put ourselves in his place. We say that we know what is right for us. We know what is good for us, not God. So it's a power grab. So we saw in week one the origin of sin. Week two, we examine the nature of sin. I want to shift gears now, and I want to show you the effect of sin on humanity. Uh, I want to say it this way. I want to show you today how sin twisted humanity, how it mangled God's original design for humanity. Uh, Before I can do that, though, we need to spend just another moment imagining how Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden went down. Now, I want you to just remember that God commanded back in Genesis chapter 2, he said, uh, the Bible says that the Lord God commanded the man, Adam. He says, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, what does he say? You will certainly die. Now, again, we, we saw this last week, but please notice that this command was directed specifically at Adam. But we saw, we've seen in the first five verses that Eve was the one that was doing all the conversing with the serpent, not Adam. And then again, if you'll notice in verse 6, Eve's making all the decisions here, not Adam. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he he ate it. Now, uh, Here's what's interesting to me about this. Because Adam knows the cost of eating the forbidden fruit, or at least he knows what God warned him about the cost of eating fruit from that tree, even if Adam didn't intervene in the conversation as he should have, you would think that when he sees his beloved reach for the fruit, he would have stopped her, but he didn't. So then, okay, 
He didn't do those things. So then at the very least, knowing that the risk involved is death, you would think that he would have been chivalrous enough to say, sweetheart, let, let me take the first bite. Let, let me risk my life, not you. But that's not how this goes down. Eve takes the first bite, then holds the fruit up for Adam to eat. But Adam hesitates. He's not biting, not yet. Why? Because he wants to know what's going to happen to her, which must have been a very awkward few minute moments for Eve as, as Adam stands there watching to see if she's going to start foaming at the mouth, gasping for air, convulsing, heaving, whatever, before he's willing to take a bite. I can't even imagine how much marriage counseling it took for them to get past that. Okay? But, 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 here's the thing. Uh, she didn't die when she ate the fruit. Uh, nor, did, nor did Adam. And what are we to make of that? Because God said that they would certainly die. I mean, what's up with that? Did he change his mind? Was he lying? After all, was Satan right? I mean, I think it's a fair question, right? The problem is that when you and I hear the word die, we think only of physical death. And we're going to see that that's certainly part of what is meant by the word death here when God says that they will die. But uh, God is referring to something much more comprehensive than just physical death. When God said that they would certainly die, he was referring to death as separation from God. Death is separation from God. Now, the significance of that is, I think, I think maybe it's most clearly seen uh, by a passage in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is describing God in the person of Jesus. Uh, he, says, he says this, he says, for in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And then it says, and in him, all things hold together. And so when God said that they would certainly die, he meant that they would be cut off from their source of life. Not only is he the source of life, the creator of all things, he's also the one who holds all things together together. And so when God said that they would certainly die if they ate the fruit, he was saying that their rebellion would sever them from God and chaos would enter the world. Think of it in these terms. Uh, Imagine that Adam and Eve had been connected to God by an umbilical cord through which his life and character and power were constantly being imparted to them. That's how they were designed to live, as dependent beings with a with a metaphorical <laughs> umbilical cord attached to God through which they would receive life and power for living. But their sin, you see, cut the cord. And now, these dependent beings have foolishly declared their independence from God, and they are now completely on their own. And this will twist humanity at every point. Chaos is going to enter the world and they are going to fall apart. You'll see this. So let me just say specifically, sin has twisted humanity in four ways, physically, spiritually, psychologically, and sociologically. It's twisted us physically, spiritually, psychologically, and sociologically. And let's just start with the most obvious. Sin has twisted us physically. You know, God said to Adam in chapter 2, as we saw just a moment ago, he said, when you eat it, eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, uh, I've been using a metaphor 
of an umbilical cord. But I want to just shift metaphors on you for just a moment, okay? Imagine for the moment that a large tree uh, has been severed from its roots. What happens when it's severed from its roots? Well, it dies, right? Now, you might not notice that immediately. In the very instant that it's severed from its roots, the tree's leaves, I mean, they still look green. It'll likely keep standing, at least for a while. Nothing about it is going to look dead immediately from the outside, but it is dead. And over time, death will start to reveal itself. Leaves will begin to wither. Limbs will grow brittle and snap off. Wood will start to decay internally. At some point, maybe it'll be a huge wind. The tree will fall. Similarly, in this moment, sin severed Adam and Eve from the source of life. And consequently, they began in that very moment to die. And listen to me, in a very real sense, all of us here today, even our children, are in various stages of dying. You know, the younger you are, the harder it is to notice, but the older that you get, you sense it. Things that you could once do, you can't do anymore. Bones get brittle, you know. Gravity does a number on your body. Things begin to sag because we're dying. And what's fascinating is that the author of Genesis underscores this for us. You don't have to turn there, but in chapter 5, the author of Genesis lists all of Adam's descendants and how long each of them lived. And I want you to watch what happens. I'm not going to read this to you. I'm going to let you read it for yourself. Watch what happens. Let's keep flipping through those slides. For those of you who are listening online, what those who are here are seeing is that with each descendant of Adam, the author of Genesis repeats the phrase, and then he died. Eight different times. Underscoring the physical death that came into the world through sin. That's not what we were designed for. We were designed to live forever. Sin, you see, has twisted us physically so that our bodies, well, they die. Sin has not only twisted us physically, but it has also twisted us spiritually. Uh, God designed human beings with the capacity to enjoy relationship with him, and we see this in numerous places in these first three chapters. God walks with them, he talks with them, they enjoy relationship with him, and And in this relationship with God, they would find their highest meaning uh, and purpose. God would be, think about this, God would be the focal point for their life. He would also be the reference point for their lives. They knew where they were in the world in relation to where he was. Their lives, in a very real sense, revolved around him. And so all of their needs for love and security and beauty would be met in this relationship. But at the moment that Adam and Eve put themselves in the place of God, the capacity for this relationship ceased to exist. Uh, The prophet Isaiah describes it this way. He says, your iniquities, that's another word for sin, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Elsewhere, the New Testament says that that we are alienated 
from God by our sin. Which means that Adam and Eve were now alone in the world. With no reference point any longer, no focal point to give them meaning and purpose. They they would have to find meaning and, and purpose. They'd have to find love and security and beauty. All of the things that they were designed to experience in their relationship with God, they would have to find those things apart from the one for whom they were created, which meant that they had to find another focal point for their life, something other than God through which they would have to try to squeeze the same meaning and purpose and love and security and beauty out of that they could only find in God. And this spiritual separation has been passed down to us, of course. And we too naturally try to find love and meaning and purpose in created things rather than the creator. Find it in spout in our try to find it in our spouses and our families, work, money, pleasure, power, just to name a few. But none of those prove to be adequate. <clears throat> they all disappoint. Because they can never be an ultimate focal point and reference point for life. Saint Augustine once prayed, You've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is why you will find that nothing in this life will give you ultimate satisfaction. You'll always be looking for more, something else. Because your heart, you were created for relationship with God. Yet, we've been cut off from him, separated from him by our sin. Sin's twisted us spiritually. See, We're cut off from the one for whom we were created and left to find everything that we were designed to experience in him on our own. So since twisted us physically, it's, it's twisted us spiritually. But third, I want you to notice also that sin has twisted humanity psychologically. And of course that makes sense because as we said last week, when Adam and Eve decided to put themselves in the place of God, they took the exit ramp off of the highway of reality. And we've all inherited this God complex from them. The problem is that in the moments when we're the most honest with ourselves, like when it's three o'clock in the morning and you can't sleep, or I don't know, when you've been alone for a long time, isolated from other people for too long, or when you journey up into your head and spend too much time there, reality rushes in, doesn't it? And it reminds us, you aren't God. You don't measure up. There's something very wrong with you, which is what happened to Adam and Eve when they ate the forbidden fruit. Look at verse 7. In Genesis chapter 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And then God says to him, who told you? He asks him, who told you that you were naked? Now, uh, why did God ask that question? Who who told you that you were naked? I mean, God, of course, knew what had happened. He wasn't asking for himself. The reason that he asks it is that Adam and Eve had always been naked, and it had never been a problem before. At the end of chapter 2, if you were to go back to the end of chapter 2, very last verse of chapter 2, it says that Adam Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame, like it wasn't a problem. But now they realize they're naked and they're afraid. 
And so when God asked the question, is this, it's as if he's saying, Adam, you've always been naked. Why, why is it now something that you have to hide? You need to understand, <clears throat> nakedness, you see, originally simply meant to be, to be known. That, that's what it means to be naked, to be known, to be seen without anything to hide behind. Before Adam and Eve decided to be their own reference points, before they decided to be their own masters, before they decided to be the centers of their own universe, they had no problem with radical vulnerability. But now suddenly, excuse me, being vulnerable. Suddenly now, being vulnerable, being seen by somebody, being observed, being visible, being open and uncovered, it's traumatic for them all of a sudden. In other words, what they're feeling for the first time in their lives is shame. They feel shame in, in front of their creator, in front of one another. And they recognize that they fall woefully short of this position that they have put themselves in of being God. When they compare themselves to, to God, they, they see we're not God. <laughs> shame is something that we've all inherited from Adam and Eve. It's, it's universal. You know intuitively that something is lacking in you. All of us know this. All of us feel this. We don't, other, we don't want us, others to see what's lacking in us. Right? We, we desperately want to control how they see us. And so what we do, we do just like Adam and Eve do. We, we, we cobble together a covering for ourselves, fig leaves, that we try to hide behind, that make us appear to be whole and complete and in control when we're not. Do you recognize this in yourself? Do you recognize this in yourself? Like, like what are your fig leaves? How do you cover your shame? How do you cover your sense of inadequacy? What is it that you hide behind? I, I've told those of you who've been uh, here. No, I, I've told you before about this guy who every time I run into him tells me about his big boat. Like every single time. I mean, he doesn't. He, he didn't go to church here. You wouldn't know him. But every time, <clears throat> every time I run into this guy, he works that into the conversation. I, I don't know the guy very well, and I don't see him very often. So he probably doesn't remember that every time that he sees me, he always brings his big boat up when he talks to me. But he does every single time. Now, frankly, maybe the fact that I noticed that is because I'm jealous of his big boat. I don't know. Maybe that's it. But he works it in every time. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with having a boat. I mean, that's a fun thing. But if you're using to cover up your shame, it's just a fig leaf. It's just a fig leaf. What are your fig leaves? What do you try to work into conversations? What do you lead with when you want to control how somebody perceives you when you want to impress them what do you lead with i've had many fig leaves over the course of my life sports athletic ability when i was when i was younger was a fig leaf for me uh communication skills uh were another i was aware you know even from a young age that for some reason god had given me you know he had chosen to give me the ability to communicate well and so i could hide behind my communication skills i could control how other people perceive me i could think i could make them think that i was more whole more complete than i really am and i'm embarrassed to tell you that sometimes i still do that by the way what are your fig leaves money job Education, intelligence, competence, sense of humor. Have you ever been around somebody who always has to tell a joke, always has to make people laugh? That's a fig leaf. Judgmentalist, that's a fig leaf. It takes the focus off of your imperfections, puts it on other people. Being a martyr. Ever known somebody who loves playing the victim? 
See, all of those things are evidences of our psychological twistedness, our attempts to hide our shame and to control other people's perception of us. Sin is, you see, it's, it's twisted us psychologically. It's left us feeling shame about ourselves. So it's twisted us physically, it's twisted us spiritually, it's twisted us psychologically. Finally, it's also twisted us sociologically. Sociologically. Can you put that slide up on the screen for us? It's twisted as sociologically. And the first sign of that, of course, is, is the fig leaves. Uh, the fig leaves were an attempt to hide themselves from God, but it's also a way of hiding from each other, right? See, once, you, once each of them ate the fruit and put themselves in the place of God, they were both suddenly out for themselves first. And that meant that they couldn't trust one another. You can't be vulnerable in front of someone that you don't trust. You have to hide. And if you doubt that they were suddenly out for themselves, watch this. In verse 11, God asks Adam, he asks him if he'd eaten the forbidden fruit. And again, of course, God knows the answer to that question. He's not asking it for himself. He's trying to get Adam to own it, to acknowledge it, to confess it. But watch what Adam does, verse 12. The man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So he's blaming everybody else here, really. Like he's blaming God. The woman you, that you, God, put here with me, she made me do it. And then, of course, obviously he's blaming Eve too. Like for the first time in their lives, in their relationship, Adam and Eve are in conflict with one another. He blames her. He throws her under the bus. How do you think it feels to be thrown under the bus? Do you like being thrown under the bus? So they're in conflict with one another. And of course, as sin is passed down to people and multiplied, we're increasingly separated from one another sociologically, aren't we? I mean, we see it in marriage. Marriages routinely fall apart. But of course, it's not just in the context of marriage that we're divided. We're always blaming one another. It's the conservatives' fault. It's the liberals' fault. It's the patriarchy. It's women, it's blacks, it's whites, it's management, it's labor, it's rich, it's the poor, it's evangelicals, it's the media, it's China, it's America, it's Canada. Actually, nobody says it's Canada. Canada is not important. We were meant to live peacefully with, with one another, but we can't do it. Sin's twisted us sociologically. All of the stuff that divides people, petty jealousy, racism, misogyny, greed, it all started here in seed form putting themselves in the place of God, left Adam and Eve severed from the one who holds everything together, and it left them out for themselves first, which divided them. Every aspect, you see, of human life, physical life, spiritual life, psychological well-being, or relationships, sociologically, every aspect of human life has been twisted, mangled, wrenched, distorted by sin. That's how sin has affected humanity. Every aspect of humanity has been twisted by sin. And if we were left to ourselves, there would be no hope. But I don't want to leave you there. I don't want to end this in our ruin because God doesn't leave us in our, room, in our ruin. Right? So let me, let me close with this. You know, you need to understand that human beings are unbelievably creative at finding ways to deny that we're sinful and that our sin is the problem with the world. And by, nef- by definition, if the problem is us, we can't save ourselves. And so we'll go to enormous lengths 
to deny this. For instance, uh, in intellectual circles, uh, often people refuse to even hear the concept of sin. It's ridiculous. It's primitive. It's regressive. That can't be what's wrong with humanity. Atheists conveniently remove the existence of God because if we remove him from reality, there's nothing to compare us to that would reveal us as sinners. That's convenient. But you also need to understand that religion is another way that we try to deny our sinfulness. Religion tells us that if we can just obey a religious code of conduct, we're good, we're fine, we're all right. There's nothing really wrong with it. But all of those strategies of denial, even religion, they're all just fig leaves. Would you notice something in this passage? It's fascinating to me. The consistency of the Bible and its message is so fascinating to me. Adam and Eve, well, when God approaches them, they're quite content to just live in their ruin. Like they're just going to pretend everything's okay. They're going to hide behind their fig leaves. They're going to live in denial. But what happens? Did you notice? Did you notice what happened? God sought, God sought Adam out. Verse 8 says it. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? It's a fascinating question, where are you? Because remember, he was their reference point. They knew where they were in the world on the basis of where he was in relationship to him. And so if they were honest with themselves, they knew they were lost, but they wouldn't admit that. And so God made the first move. He took the initiative to seek them out, to find them in their lostness. But that's not all. At the end of this whole tragedy, there's a flicker of hope. Watch what happens. Verse 21 of chapter 3. I'll put it up on the screen. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but you might want to note it for your future reference. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. What's the significance of that? God removed their man-made fig leaves. They're stitched up, cobbled together, uh, pitiful coverings that they tried to hide behind, and he took the initiative to cover them himself. Why? What's the point? What's the point? The point is you can't cover yourself. You can't remove your own shame. Only God can do that. That's the point. And many centuries later, God completes this act of redemption that he began here in the garden when he covered Adam and Eve. He came into this twisted, tragic world in the person of Jesus And Jesus took the punishment for sin upon himself on the cross. On the cross, Jesus tasted death. Jesus was twisted on the cross. He was mangled on the cross. Jesus was separated from his father. Jesus tasted death. Jesus came apart psychologically on the cross, bearing our shame. And Jesus was scorned by his very people becoming the scapegoat for their sin. He was twisted, mangled, so that we could be made straight. And the Apostle Paul, 
in the New Testament looks back on this passage in Genesis 3 and he echoes the idea of coverings to explain what Jesus did for us on the cross. Watch this, Romans chapter 4. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are what? 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 Whose sins are what? Covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. The point is, you can't cover yourself. Only God can do that. Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for humanity's rebellion against God. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He covered us through his blood. He clothed us with his righteousness. It's always God's work that saves us in the person of Jesus. It is not our work. It is not your work. So let me just say something here. Here's how, if you're wondering this morning, whether you're a Christian, here's how you can tell whether you're a Christian. If I say to you, if I were to say to you, do you see today that you can be a Christian entirely because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you? Do you see that you can be completely accepted, completely loved, not by your actions, not by your goodness, but by Jesus' goodness, his life, his death on the cross? Do you see that? You can have your shame covered by Jesus' life and death, not by anything that you do. Do you understand that? And if you say to me, well, I'm trying to be a good person. Or if you say, I want to be a Christian, but I really have to get some things out of my life before I can really become a Christian. You don't get it. Those are, those are fig leaves. Do you see this? God had to make the first move. God had to take the initiative. God had to take the punishment. God had to do the covering. Nothing that you can do restores the severed relationship between you and God. That's reality. And so if you're wondering this morning, if you're a Christian, what do you believe? Are you trying to be good enough? Because if you are, it won't work. Christianity says that you can be restored to relationship with God only by believing in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, not by anything that you do. Now, I also want to say to others of you who are, Christ, who are Christians this morning, people who have believed in Christ, uh, I want to challenge you that you need to do some self-assessment. You need to figure out what fig leaves that you're still trying to cover your shame with. And you know, it's fascinating. I mean, it may be some of the things that I mentioned earlier, but it could also be, for Christians, it can also be things like your Bible study or your prayer life or your service or your sincerity. I've met many Christians who think that their obedience justifies them before God. And if that's the case, you need to repent because it is never your performance that is the basis for your relationship with God. It is always and only what Christ did. You may need to repent of your prayer life, of your Bible study. You may need to repent of your service, of your evangelism. You may need to repent of all the good things that you do. Because you may be trusting, if you're trusting in those things, to justify you before God, those are fig leaves. Before you became a Christian, the only way you could have a relationship with God was through the cross. And is just as true after you become a Christian. The only way, listen to me now, this is where we end. 
The only way to walk with God is to walk naked, to come before him empty-handed. It's time to come out from behind the fig leaf and to experience the life we were always meant to have in relationship with the subject and the object of life. Would you bow your heads with me? We do not deny this morning that we are sinners. We affirm that. We affirm, Lord, that there is nothing that we can do. No amount of good works, no amount of avoidance of sin, no amount of performance that we can ever do enough to restore the severed relationship that we have with you. And so, Lord, uh, we ask this morning, that you would drive this point home to us. For those who are here today who maybe have never believed in Jesus because they thought, well, I'm not good enough. I've got to clean things up. Or maybe they've thought, I'm so good. I don't need to believe in Jesus. Would you drive this reality home this morning? That there is nothing, there's no amount of goodness that can restore their relationship with God. Only belief in the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. And then, Lord, for those who do know Christ but still count on, they still hide behind fig leaves. We all do this, actually. Trusting our performance in some way as the basis for our relationship with God. Lord, would you bring us to a point of repentance over those things, even good things that we may do, that we count in, that we trust in. And would you remind us that it is always only what Jesus did on the cross that is the basis for our relationship with And we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. We worship you this morning as the one and only Messiah. It's in your name that we pray.